friends. Welcome to the Creative Impact Podcast. I'm your host, Rachel Caldwell, and I'm so happy you're here. Each episode, I take some time to chat with fellow artists about life, faith, and the impact of the arts. Hey friends, and welcome to episode 96 of the Creative Impact Podcast. I'm so excited that you're joining us today, and if this is your first time listening, thank you so much for joining in. I'm so excited because this weekend is Project Dance Houston on March 18th, and there's going to be a free open-air public dance concert at Levy Park in Houston. So if you happen to live in the Houston area, I encourage you to come out and check out the performance. And also, if you happen to be participating in Project Dance Houston, I will be there all three days, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and I would love to get to meet you, so be sure to come say hello. I'll have a table at the Expo on Friday, and then I'll be around, so you can definitely find me there. Our guest for today's conversation is Juliana Rubio-Slager. She is the co-founder, artistic director, and resident choreographer of Ballet 5-8. Juliana is really a groundbreaking figure within the field of dance, as she is one of the few Mexican-American artistic directors and resident choreographers. Through her work, she is someone who's paving the way for other women and minorities in professional ballet. She's an incredible choreographer and recently created her 50th ballet, which is incredible. She's known for engaging audiences in discussions of life and faith through her choreography, and she also loves training and mentoring the next generation of artists at the School of Ballet 5.8's pre-professional conservatory and trainee programs. In our conversation today, we talk about the importance of having various perspectives and voices in art, and particularly in dance. We talk about her dance journey, as well as some of the obstacles that she has overcome along the way, including eating disorders and struggles with mental health. I love her heart to give life to everyone that she encounters, whether that's as a teacher, a mom, a choreographer, a mentor, or any area of her life. I enjoy getting to hear about her choreographic process and what her career as a choreographer has looked like so far. Thank you so much again for joining us and enjoy my conversation with Juliana Rubio-Slager. we were just saying, but I'm so excited to finally meet you over Zoom and get to just hear more about your story and your journey. So thank you for joining me, Juliana. Thank you so much, Rachel. Yeah, it's so fun that we know so many of the same people and it's really just an honor to be on the podcast today and get to talk to you. Thank you so much. Yeah, we have a lot of people in common. I was like, I don't even know where to start because I feel like there's so many mutual friends, which is so fun. I would love to let you just introduce yourself to our listeners and then we'll dive more into like your background and more of your story. Fantastic. Yeah. So yeah, I'm Juliana Rubio Slager. I'm the artistic director and co-founder of Ballet 5.8, which is a company that was started to spark discussion of life and faith. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, for me, there's a lot of different reasons why I started Ballet 5.8. But a big part of it is just wanting to tell stories that came from a different perspective from the ones that we typically see um, in ballet specifically. The ballet industry has kind of, you know, it's set catalog of stories that it tells. And oftentimes they miss a little bit of some of the perspective that I feel like I bring as a woman, as a minority, as a mother, and as a Christ follower. Ooh, so good. I cannot wait to hear more about what you are doing. And I've been able to see like clips of your work here and there. And I'm just so excited about 
all that's happening there. So I can't wait to hear more. And just to like rewind a little bit, when did you first get into dance and what were those early years like for you? Yeah. So my parents knew nothing about ballet. So it's kind of funny because they're not even really sure where I came up with wanting to go to dance. That's amazing. (laughs) Yeah, I know. It's super funny. My mom is like, I'm pretty sure you saw the Nutcracker on PBS. Like she remembers me watching that as a little girl. And then a few months later, yeah, I just like drove her nuts basically until she put me in class. I think I was four years old and the studio there, they didn't have like a little kid program. It was like a more serious program. And so the youngest they would take was six. And anyway, so my mom called and and the lady was like, nope, we can't. She's too young. And mom was like, okay. And so a month later I had bothered her every single day. (laughs) So she called back and she was like, literally this child is driving me nuts. Like, will you please take her? And so anyway, her name was Colleen Schwartz um, in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and just a really sweet lady. And yeah, she took me in. I was too young for the class. She was like, as long as she's not a distraction, you know, she can go in. So I have like this memory. Yeah, everybody was like so much taller than me. And I just remember being this little little girl, but I was so excited. And from then on, you know, kind of the rest is history. Like I just truly fell head over heels in love with dancing. Wow, that's so fun. And the fact that it was just really something that was already just inside of you and that you just were drawn to, even though it wasn't necessarily part of you know, your family history and all of that. That's just so cool seeing like the gifting that was already placed in you. So yeah. So I'm curious, what did kind of your training years look like and then going into kind of your professional career? Yeah. Yeah. So I trained at a couple of different schools, you know, starting out, my parents didn't know the difference from, you know, a recreational school versus a pre-professional school. You know, they just really didn't know. They just weren't around ballet. And so I was lucky to have a teacher who saw my passion and how excited I was. And when I was, I think, nine years old, um, she pulled my dad aside and she was like, hey, you know, you really need to put your daughter in a more serious school because she needs to be going twice a week now. Like she's going to get you know, behind if she doesn't start training more seriously. And she was like, you know, she she looks like she has the passion to really go for this. So you guys need to mm-hmm. get her into the school. So yeah. And then, you know, my parents drove me to Lansing. So that's the capital of Michigan where I grew up and we lived about 45 minutes outside of that. Okay. So, yeah. you know, we started kind of doing supplemental lessons up there. I worked with private coaches, you know, really just a lot of really good people moved heaven and earth for me. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm eternally grateful for that, for the men many, many different teachers and studio owners and yeah, just even community members and church members who helped to pay for dance lessons. Mm. And yeah, I was on work scholarship, you know, literally scrubbing toilets for paying for tuition. So it it was pretty remarkable, honestly, because my family was a lower socioeconomic kind of family Mm -hmm. um, starting out. And we had a lot of kids and Mm. it just would not have been in the cards for me, um, except for the people that really invested in that journey. Wow. That's really powerful. Just the the beauty of community and people coming around and parents just making sacrifices. I feel like, you know, driving a good distance to get to class and that kind of thing. I mean, that's so beautiful. That's so awesome. So did you stay pretty much at that same more professional kind of training school for the rest of your like training years? Yeah. (laughs) 
Yeah, okay. I did. I did. I trained at a couple of different schools, but yeah, you know, for the most part, I was at Greater Lansing Ballet mm-hmm. and they were incredible. Barbara Banasikowski Smith was amazing. And then, yeah, I trained also with Lori Ladwig at the mm-hmm. Academy of the Arts. So there was a couple of really, really amazing teachers in my life mm-hmm. that, you know, gave me what I needed. And I think I gained different things from the different schools I trained at. Mm-hmm. I got to have, you know, really strong ballet, but I also was able to be immersed in Graham and Fosse and all kinds of really diverse styles, which at the time, it's funny because I was such a bunhead. I don't think I really appreciated it, to be (laughs) honest. But now as a choreographer, I'm like, oh my gosh, like I'm so fortunate that I have all this stuff to draw on Mm -hmm. because I just, I understand kind of the foundational techniques of dance, which has been, yeah, just so pivotal in my career. Yes. To be able to blend all of those as a choreographer is probably super, super rewarding in a way. And it's nice to have that backdrop for sure. So I'm curious, just in kind of your your journey, what were maybe some of the obstacles that you had to overcome? Like, obviously, just even getting started, you were saying just from like an economic standpoint, and then anything, anything else that you want to share about? Yeah, just any anything you had to overcome along along the journey as you made it into your professional career? Yeah, no, for sure. So I grew up in a Christian home, which, you know, was a huge blessing in so many ways. But I think, you know, probably a lot of our listeners can relate to this. Even if you grow up within that kind of Christian bubble, you still have to make the choice to follow God for yourself. For sure. So I, yeah, I think as a young person, there was a part of me that's like, yeah, God is great, you know, and and like he's he's awesome and all the things. But then I'd get into ballet class and I would tear myself down mentally, right? And I would, you know, judge my body very harshly. And, you know, being a Latina, it's, you know, I was curvy and shorter and, you know, some of these things that um, maybe are seen as less desirable in certain ballet atmospheres. And Mm -hmm. so I started to notice that, right? It's like you get Point Magazine right back in the days where it was like a subscription, subscription, right? Exactly. exactly. (laughs) And you pull it out and you're like, oh, like I don't look like any of these people. And even the Latinas or the women of color that were in Point Magazine, they were always ones who kind of looked a little bit more Anglo. And so I think there was a lot of difficulty for me there because I was like, okay, I don't look like that. So I wanted to make my body fit in. I wanted to be liked. I wanted to get into the summer intensives. So I definitely made that such a priority that it became an idol. Mm -hmm. And I think, again, that's so relatable. So many of us fall into that, right, of kind of trying Mm -hmm. to make, make it happen by any means possible. And so I did end up with, yeah, a series of eating disorders. I was struggle with both anorexia and bulimia over a period of several years, um, which was a huge roadblock and ended up derailing, you know, some of my hopes and dreams as a dancer. So that was a a pretty intense low point for me. But you know, God is so good. And he's so he's so great. And even in that low point, it's amazing to see how he was working and how he used that to redirect me and to redirect my focus back to him. So even though it it was not fun to go through and, and talking about it always makes me a little sad. I also I'm so convinced that that was God's plan, you know, to allow me to struggle a little bit so that I could understand that this wasn't about me and that it was really about his goal and his, his beauty in my life. Mm, I love that perspective, seeing how, yeah, how God can use even those, those challenges and struggles in our lives. And if you'd be willing to share just kind of how you came overcame that and obviously like with the Lord's help, but how you overcame that and maybe even just speaking to any dancers that might be listening that are 
dealing with some of those same thoughts and struggles and kind of feeling like they are not maybe where they want to be um, and trying that whole like taking it into our own hands idea. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I guess kind of the the Bible story that was on my heart a lot in these times, and I think it's something that God kind of pulled my focus to, was the story of Abraham mm. and kind of the whole saga with Hagar and Ishmael. And I think it's so relatable because as human beings, we're really good at going, okay, God's given me a promise, right? I knew that God wanted me to dance. There was no doubt about that. There was a calling there. It was clear as day. The passion, right, was put in me from a little kid. But I did the Abraham thing and I went, okay, God, I'm going to take that promise Mm -hmm. by my own means. Right. So, and that's, that's really what I did. And so I said, I'm going to make this happen because this is what you want for me, God. So I'm just going to grab it and go for it instead of you know, being patient and waiting for Isaac, I was running out there right after Ishmael. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's a story that I very much relate to. And I think a lot of dancers do. We have this scarcity mindset that somehow God is not going to have enough abundance to get us to the goal that we have to take it into our own power, right? It's like we're we're afraid there's not enough, I don't know, contracts or there's not enough Mm -hmm. summer intensives or there's not enough company spots or whatever it is that we have to make it happen in our own power. And so what God means as a beautiful promise of his will for our lives becomes ugly because of how we try to get to it aside from his guidance and from his timing. Right. And so that's really what I learned. Yeah. And I ended up, you know, being in the hospital and just a lot of really tragic stuff had to go through mm. pretty heavy therapy and rehab. Um, yeah. I had major depression and anxiety disorders alongside that. So just in full vulnerability, it's, it's something that I know our culture is getting a little better about talking about mental illness yeah. and that awareness, but it's huge in the dance culture, you know, and I could, I could hijack our whole podcast, Rachel, but I won't um, <laughs> to try to talk about it. But even as teachers, even well-meaning teachers, you know, that would walk by me at bar and go, oh, I can see your lunch sticking out. You know, they didn't mean anything by it. But when you say that to a 14 year old vulnerable teenager, yeah. that can be taken in a really bad way. And so not to blame anybody in particular, but I think kind of a toxic soup of my own internal difficulties mixed with some of those bad practices within ballet as an industry, Mm -hmm. you know, compounded for me into a really serious situation. And by God's grace, you know, I've been rehabbed for a very long time, been in remission, been doing really, really well. Mm -hmm. But those sorts of mental games are something that stick with you your whole life, right? And I still Mm -hmm. go to therapy and I still take medication for depression. So just to be honest about that, that you don't have to be afraid if you're on that journey and you're not less than and it's okay to have help and it's okay to go in and talk to a therapist and a psychiatrist. Anyway, I could go on and on, but it's okay. It's healthy. It's godly to take care of yourself. That's super helpful and so good. And I I think that's a great thing to just even like take that moment to pause and go a little deeper in just because I think it is something that's so real for really all of us at different levels, I think, but especially like you said, in the dance world and yeah, just for teachers to having that mindfulness. And like you said, I think it's maybe in the dance world as well, gotten a little bit better as far as like people recognizing our words have power and teachers recognizing the impact that 
those things can have on students. Yeah. But yeah, that's just such a good reminder, I think, for all of us and a great encouragement that it is okay to, you know, to get help and to continue to, you know, invest in your own mental health and physical health and all of those things. So thank you for being just vulnerable and willing to share because I know it's probably not fun to talk about, but at the same time, like so good, I think, for everyone to be like, even these people that we look up to and we're like, wow, look at all the amazing things they're doing that, you know, every single person is walking through something and that that's okay. And that we're, the Lord has, has a purpose in it and he's walking with us through it. So, so good. Yeah, no, it's so true. And it's, it's amazing how much you get to know Jesus when you are sitting in the dirt, in the soot, in the ashes of your own making, Mm. when you really have to face the fact that, Sure, there's circumstances and, you know, other people play a role in your mental health. But at the end of the day, it's something you have to own, right? Mm -hmm. You have to own where you're at. You have to own the journey of healing. You have to own where it's taken you. But the intimacy you have with Jesus of him sitting there in the dirt with you as you go through that, there's nothing like it. And so I don't know. I just encourage people not to run away from that and not to be afraid of those tough moments, because if you really lean into the Lord in that time, you get to know him in a way that nothing else, you know, really can compare. Um, Mm -hmm. All the happiness in the world does not teach you about God the way that those deep, lonely, difficult moments do. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I think C.S. Lewis says it best, but pain is the gift that no one wants. Mm-hmm. But pain is ultimately something that if we allow it to, can drive us towards God, right? It can drive us towards God or it can drive us towards bitterness. Yeah. So the work you have to do is to allow it to drive you into the arms of Jesus. Mm, so good. Ah, man, we could end it right there. No, so good. <laughs> Not that I want to, I want to keep going, but just like beautiful truth. And yeah, so I guess shifting gears slightly, although I know it's all connected, I would love to get into how you got started with Ballet 5-8 and started down that journey. What was that season between maybe graduating high school and all of that into then starting your own company just to fill in the gaps and then maybe we can dive into Ballet 5-8. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, so after, you know, kind of I recovered from the eating disorders, I kind of recognized that mainstream dance was not going to be a healthy place for me. And so I tried to figure out kind of, okay, like, is there anybody out there who is a Christian? Like, who is doing this? Like, is there anybody I can join forces with? And so, you know, Ballet Magnificat at that time was kind of the flagship for all things Christian dance. And so, yeah, so I remember, you know, looking them up, I think on whatever Yahoo or Bing or whatever we had at that exactly. time. And We always say Google, right? but I'm like, I don't even know if it was a thing yet. Yeah, I know. I don't think it was. Yeah, I don't think Google was around yet. But yeah, and just looked them up and kind of went, oh, okay. And, and I'd heard about them before, but I hadn't really considered it as my path until that time. And so that was just a beautiful experience going down there and just seeing how they bring dance and ministry together. And I think for me, just being in a place with a lot of believers was really what I needed at that time. And spiritually, I think I grew a lot because I needed the fellowship. I needed to learn how to kind of put dance down as an idol and how to Mm -hmm. use it in service of the Lord. And that's something that I think everybody at Valley Magnificat has a really strong passion to do. Mm -hmm. And so so that part of being down there, I thought was really instrumental for me. But even in that, as much as, you know, I loved the people and I loved their passion, I knew that I still wanted to do more concert style 
dance. And so that was something I was still drawn to. And so, you know, I knew that if I was going to do that, that I would have to find a company that would have that same kind of repertoire and aesthetic. And so I started looking again and there just was nothing out there. So Mm -hmm. I kind of put that dream down a little bit and I was like, well, I guess nobody really has done this before. Nobody else is doing kind of concert dance from a faith-based perspective. And so, you know, kind of fast forwarding a few years, I get engaged to my now husband. And so he was in Chicago. Yeah, I know. Happy times. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. So I moved to Chicago, you know, we got married. Um, I continued to dance. I continued to, to teach. I taught for, you know, a while at that point choreographing. I was in the baby stages of learning to choreograph and Mm -hmm. doing all that good stuff. But yeah, I was living in Chicago and my good friend, Amy Sanderson was also living in Chicago and we just felt this kind of continual tug of the Holy Spirit to start a company that would be using ballet and dance the way that we see it in kind of a mainstream marketplace setting, mm-hmm. but from the inspiration of faith. I love and so that. In- yeah. yeah, thank you. Instead mm-hmm. of kind of taking ballet and putting it into that worship and church setting, which is lovely. And, you know, there's a, it's a really important thing, but to kind of explore another area of what faith-based dance could look like. Um, yeah. And that was something that we just kind of kept coming to again and again and again. And uh, yeah, at that time, you know, there wasn't anything out there. And now there are, there are a lot more companies that are kind of moving in that direction. But at that time, there wasn't. And so we kind of went, well, if this is going to be a thing, we're going to have to start it, you know? And right. yeah. Yeah. And Amy honestly was so much more like on that wagon than I was. You know, I'm a new wife. A couple years after I got married, I got pregnant with my first son. Mm -hmm. So my husband's going into pastoral ministry at this time. And so I was like, I'm going to be a pastor's wife. You know, I'm having a baby. Like I was like, my dancing years are probably behind me now or, or shortly to be so mentally and emotionally. I was starting to go, okay, like it's time to transition But Amy was really faithful to the Lord and just kind of kept putting it back in front of me and going, I really think this is what God wants us to do. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember one time at a Bible study, women's Bible study in this little apartment in Chicago, and we were praying and worshiping at the end. And I just heard the Lord clear as day. He Mm -hmm. was like, you know, you need to listen to Amy. (laughs) Like She's she's telling you the right thing. Uh I know. He's like, it's time for you to do this. He was like, this is what I want you to do. And it it was just one of those unmistakable just moments where you go, okay, like I can't resist anymore. Um, And I was eight months pregnant at that time. So, you know, I got this big old watermelon belly Uh and I'm going, you want me to do what, God? Right? Excuse me. You what? Exactly. But yeah, I don't know. God delights in that, right? It's like First Corinthians. He delights in using the things that we think of as foolish, right? To think, shame the things that are wise. And so that that was the situation. And so a couple weeks after that, a studio that I had been like freelancing for, they ended up shifting and transitioning and they needed a new artistic director for their school. So it's pretty wild because within two weeks, God kind of said, hey, I want you to start this company. And then a school was dropped in my lap. It was a nonprofit. So with nonprofits, yeah, you can't sell them. You have to like transfer it to another nonprofit. Right, yeah. Yeah, so everything, bars, mirrors, buildings, students, you know, Mm -hmm. the whole nine yards, they just gave it to us. And I had my son, you know, two weeks after that. So it was just (laughs) wild. That's like how how it seems to work sometimes. God's like, here you go. I 
All the yes. things. Yeah, mm-hmm. I know. I joke about Ballet 58 and Judah, my oldest son. They're twins. You know, they'll be, yep. well, they're 11 this year. You know, and it, it just, it mm-hmm. is. They are. They're my twins. So yeah. it's kind of funny because, yeah, God just, when he decided to move, he moved, put out an audition call. We auditioned dancers. We had six beautiful dancers that joined us that first year. And yeah, kind of from there, it's just been off to the races of trying to mm-hmm. formulate and physicalize and understand and fine tune the vision that God's put on our hearts. For sure. So I know you shared already at the beginning a little bit of the vision and the heart behind Ballet 5-8. I'm curious, where did the name come from? And then also just anything else you want to share about kind of the the heart behind it? Yeah. So Amy and I both, I think, have such a big passion to see dance redeemed as a whole art form and to not like secloister ourselves as Christians in the dance industry, but Mm -hmm. really to be immersed in the marketplace. So with that focus, we wanted a company name that would kind of hold us to our vision. We wanted to make sure that it spoke to who we were, but at the same time, we wanted something that wouldn't be so on the nose, you know, like Salvation Ballet, you know, we didn't want it to be quite so on the nose so that we could be in dialogue. And we wanted a name that would allow people to ask, hey, what does Ballet 5-8 mean? Mm -hmm. So that we could share rather than it just kind of being in your face. And the verse itself, you know, it talks about, but God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Mm -hmm. And so what I take from that is it's really about God reaching for us, right? He made the first move. right? And that's our desire with 5-8 is that we would make the first move, that we would be the reacher outers to the people who have not yet met God. Ooh, yeah. That's so good. So good. Cool. So I'm curious as, so have you guys been like co-directing? Is that kind of how it went down or what's the structure, yeah. I guess, of, of the leadership for Ballet 5 Yeah. So Amy for nine years was the executive director. She actually retired in whatever it was, 2020. Yeah, okay. it was 2020, the crazy pandemic year, yeah. because she she has three kids now, but she just was feeling God's call to be a stay-at-home mom. Yeah. And so after nine years of, of sacrifice, yeah, she wanted to make that jump, and so she did. Cool. And then we now have a different administrative team, um, and Amy's still you know, an advisor and a, a dear friend of mine and of Ballet Fight Eights. But yeah, we've kind of grown so much since then that we've ended up, we have an executive director and an operations director and a touring director. So we ended up with a lot more people kind of along the way over the years joining in. So I am the artistic director. I take care of kind of the dance side of Mm -hmm. things, but then we've got a lot of other people who do an amazing job at helping to run the school and the touring portion of things and the marketing and the, you know, all the communications and the donor base, all the things that have to happen Mm -hmm. to make this place sustainable. Yeah. Cause that's, it's a pretty big operation that you've got going on now. <laughs> so that's so exciting and yeah. helpful to have a whole team in place that are, you know, have their areas of focus. See, that way you're a little more freed up probably to focus on the dance side of things and choreography and all of that. So super cool. Yeah. I'm curious. I know you are Mexican American and also obviously a woman. And so like, I love your heart for helping pave the way for, you know, women and minorities to be, I don't know, to see that that's like possible in a leadership role. And it's interesting with ballet. I've always found this interesting how it's a lot of male artistic directors, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but it's just interesting given kind of the proportion of female to male dancers in the ballet world. And anyway, so I'd love to hear your thoughts on that and just what it's been like being 
like a pioneer in a sense of, yeah. you know, being a woman artistic director and also a minority as well? Yeah, no, such a great question. I think there's so many reasons why that inequity exists. And you're right. There's nothing wrong with men in leadership, right? It's like, I never want yeah. want it to come off that way when I talk about elevating female and minority voices. Mm-hmm. However, when you have a lot of people from the same background that are all in leadership, they tend to have a very similar lens through which they look. Right. And with art, I think it's very important that you have the many lenses. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, things like I'll use Balanchine, for instance, right? Yeah. Kind of an iconic very important figure in ballet. Mm -hmm. He had a certain lens of how he wanted dancers to look and what his thoughts on women were. And that comes across in his work. You know, it really comes across in the art. And if that is what everybody's dancing all the time, if we're always dancing these roles where women are not honored and valued and upheld as important the way that God views them, then we're going to end up with kind of this constant undercurrent in all ballet companies of women being either held up as just an object to be kind of objectified and seen as kind of this beauty if they look a certain way or as someone to be scorned if they don't, right? Mm-hmm. We're going to end up with that mindset because yeah. it filters down all the way from the choreography. Right. Or we're going to end up kind of in these situations where we have a constant drip of this one lens, even if it's not damaging, even the ballets that are not overtly chauvinistic or are, are not overtly putting women down. There's still this lens of women as flat, kind of one-dimensional characters. Mm-hmm. And you see that all the time. Giselle's a great example. You know, I hate to be like sad religious on the ballet end of things, but I am not a Giselle fan. I'm just not, you know, I think it's really flat. I think it's not the way any woman would react. It's utterly ridiculous that she falls in love with Albrecht and then, you know, he's cheating on her and then she's so upset she dances to her grave. And, you know, it's just, it's a really male driven storyline. You know, it's, Mm -hmm. it's a man's kind of fantasy world, if you will. Mm -hmm. It's not at all how an actual woman would react or respond. But you see that all the time in movies too, in books, right? It's not unique to ballet you have this really male kind of gaze in a lot of storytelling. Mm -hmm. So for me, I think there's a very big draw to be a choreographer because I believe that women have a huge depth of wisdom and knowledge and strength and boldness and beauty to bring forth in our stories. And I want to tell the stories of women in a way that's 3D and that honors all parts of who women are um, and not to idolize them or put them down, but to tell their stories truthfully. Mm, And I think the same is true of minorities. You know, sometimes minorities are seen as kind of exotic in some ballets, right? It's like we kind of have like Labaida, right? Oh, they're so beautiful and exotic. But it's like that, that's not really honoring to those minorities to be viewed in that way. Um, And it's not, it's not true to who they actually are. And it's very one dimensional. And so Mm -hmm. I think Those kind of things are kind of old cliches of a world that doesn't exist, thankfully, and we're moving forward. And I think part of building the kingdom of God does include kind of putting out there what God's perspective is. What does God think about women? What does God think about minorities, right? Mm -hmm. Where is he on that spectrum? He doesn't fetishize or put us on some kind of a weird pedestal. He sees us as daughters, right? He sees us as children. He sees us as important. He sees us as 
beloved. And so putting that story on stage, I think, makes a huge impact, not just to the viewer and the audience, but to the dancer dancing that story, right? To the student growing up, you see so many people idolizing Giselle and Sleeping Beauty. And it's like, what are, what are you really looking up to? Mm -hmm. Who are you looking up to in that story? That's true. So I guess my goal (laughs) is, yeah, to make heroines that my daughter can look up to and go, I actually want to be like that. And that's a good thing, right? It's not detrimental to their own kind of development as a woman to look up to these characters like it can be in classical ballet. Mm, So good. And I love the idea of, you know, how can we honor people and kind of get that, that what is God's perspective and what is, like you said, not idolizing, not demeaning, but also like just telling truth and like real stories. And yeah. So thank you for the heart that you bring and the truth that you're bringing through your work. And speaking of, maybe we'll dive more into your choreography and in your form, I saw that you are, you just recently finished your 50th ballet, choreographing your 50th ballet, which is so amazing. That's so incredible. Yeah. Cause that's a ton of work. Like if you really (laughs) break it down, that's a lot of hours and heart that goes into that. So yeah, just, do you want to share a little bit about your process as a choreographer and what it's been like these past, I guess, over a decade now that you've been choreographing and telling stories? Yeah, no, for sure. It's so funny because I always wanted to be a dancer but I don't think I ever wanted to be a choreographer. That's so funny. And it's so funny. Uh I know, isn't it? And it's like, it's kind of ironic that I think, you know, that's going to ultimately be what was the bulk of my career and what ended up being maybe the most significant part of what I love now is the choreography. Yeah. But yeah, honestly, just to be completely honest, in the beginning, I started choreographing for recitals and like YAGP and these sort of things simply because I needed the funding, you know, I just, I was freelancing, you know, Mm -hmm. and and just like, again, real talk, right. As an artist, you got to make money. And sometimes you're between contracts when you're dancing and it's like, you need a way to pay the rent. And Mm -hmm. so it was not like this big dream or something very noble in the Mm -hmm. beginning. It was just like, okay, I got to figure this out. And, you know, especially with choreographing for competitions, you'll get feedback. and, And that's helpful because at the beginning, I just was like, I remember thinking one day, I was like, I don't even know what, what even makes a good dance? Like dance is dance, you know, like what even makes it good or bad? Like, how can you even qualify that? And I think in the beginning, that was more my mindset of like, well, I'm just going to create something and just kind of see how it turns out. But over the years, I started to fall in love with it and it started to be a lot more refined. Mm -hmm. And when I started 5.8, we just didn't have any money. You know, we had exactly like $2.50. And so (laughs) it was like, okay. Amy was like, I can do the books and like the admin side and this and that. And she's like, you're going to have to choreograph. And I was like, I don't know about that. I was like, I'm not a choreographer. Like, you know, I can teach. I had a lot more teaching experience Mm -hmm. that I was like, oh, I can do that. I can teach company class and coach. And I, I know how to do that. But choreography. I was like, Oh, you know, okay. So I guess I'm going to choreograph because we don't have money to hire anybody and we're not going to be able to make any money if we don't have any choreography. So it was very practical at first, Mm -hmm. but I I was so lucky because one of our first dancers, Lauren Ader Cumpson, she trained with Gelsey Kirkland in New York and she's now like one of my very best friends. She's just a treasure and she was so gentle and kind, but she really helped to shape me as a choreographer because I would create something and I would go, okay, Lauren, 
was that any good? And she would sit back and she would give me honest feedback. You know, yes, it was. Mm. No, it wasn't. You know, that part helpful. was okay. That part, nah, rethink that, <laughs> you know, do something else. Yeah, but she was gentle and kind and willing. And she was one of the people that was like, yeah, you definitely have talent. You know, you need to like, you need to learn more. And so this is kind of funny, but like I went on Amazon, I bought a bunch of textbooks about choreography. Oh, cool. I read probably 10, 15 different books. Mm -hmm. I like put myself through, you know, Juliana's college degree of choreography and just (laughs) ingested everything that I could. Um, I called up old choreographers that I had worked with as a dancer. I like literally just would call people and be like, okay, tell me about choreography. Tell me about your process. What do you do? So I just got really, really hungry to learn. And, you know, for a long time was just like kind of ravenously taking in information. So that was how it started. And then from there, I think the best advice I ever got was just make a lot of things, mm. keep what works and ditch what doesn't. Ooh, that's good. Yes. <laughs> Isn't it? I know. I think it can get so almost like overwhelming and almost paralyzing because you want it to be yeah. amazing. Right. So it's yep. so true. If you can just get stuff out there yep. and then work with it, you know, instead of just like being a deer in the headlights and trying to, not, yeah. you know, you don't know where to start. So Exactly. No, exactly. And the dancers, like, they know that even to this day, I always tell them, I'm like, blank page effect is real. I'm like the first moment of just putting something into the universe. That is the hardest part. Exactly. And as soon as you get it out into the universe, then it becomes easier because then it's real, right? It's out there in front of you. It's like writing a book, you know, Mm -hmm. just getting something on a blank page is hard. But when something's there, then you can edit and you can revise and, you know, from there it gets easier. So, yeah, I think, you know, at this point, my process has become a lot more refined. In the beginning, it was really just pick a theme, you know, pick music and then try to bring it together. Mm -hmm. I think now at this point, having done it so much and having, you know, done a lot of different, different things with choreography over the years and, and working on a lot of grants, working on, you know, a lot of performances and tours and, you know, guesting for other places. What I've learned is that when you're creating a ballet, one of the most important things is to make it as simple as possible. Mm. And I think that simplicity is hard to reach, especially when you're choreographing something that feels very complex, like your faith. Mm, And so I think there's a, right, there's like a fear out there sometimes that if we make it too simple, that we won't be kind of honoring all aspects of what our faith is. Mm -hmm. But I think when you look at things like Jesus's parables, they're very simple, right? They're pretty simple and straightforward, but they're so powerful and they're so illustrative. So I think that's one big thing I focus on is simplicity I think the other big thing that I focus on is how to to draw the eye just in a craftsmanship sense of keeping the eye moving and flowing from one thing to the next, mm, Yeah, you know, and making sure that you understand kind of where your cone of focus is and how the staging is supporting that and where you place dancers on a stage is almost as important as any step they actually do. Mm-hmm. Leading the audience through a story has so much to do with kind of big sweeping pictures you're making on stage. And then, of course, access by the individual movement of the dancer. But I think for me, the experimentation of what does an emotion feel like? And then from that feeling that we innately have in our bodies, how do we extrapolate that out into high value dance moments? Mm -hmm. And I think when you translate movement that way, it becomes very relatable because the audience is like, oh, 
I feel seen. Like I've felt that way before, right? I mm-hmm. recognize the energy of sadness, right? I, right? I recognize the energy of pain or I recognize the energy of joy, right? Mm-hmm. And if you take that as a starting block and then get curious about it and explore it, and unwind it a little bit, it's amazing what you can come up with. And seems more organic, I feel like, as well, you know, just like you said, kind of more true to the human experience and what people can relate to. So yeah, yeah, I love that. Yeah. Staying accessible, right? It's like Mm -hmm. our most recent ballet, Bareface, it's been all about like killing gesture and mime. I'm like, no more. Like I will not use any of that. I refuse. I'm like, no, (laughs) because the audience doesn't know what it means. You know, half of us dancers don't even know what it means anymore. (laughs) Exactly. I'm over here doing ballet gestures. <laughs> yeah, right. No, exactly. And it's like, yeah, we just, we were past that. And a modern audience, yes. they can understand body language. Body language is the new mm-hmm. mime. So anyway. Love yeah. that. Yes. Oh, that's so good. <laughs> so out of your 50 ballets so far, do you have any that stand out as like your, not honestly favorites? I feel like that's not the best word to use, but that maybe were like very impactful for you personally. Yeah. Oof. Man, so many of they're like little dear friends. It's so funny how that is. You know, they're like, yeah, mm-hmm. like dear, dear friends that are kind of set on a shelf for a time. But yeah, when I go back into any of them, they, they're so significant. I'd say one big one for me was actually a 10 minute solo I choreographed called The Mother. And it's to a poem by Gwendolyn Brooks about her experience um, with post-abortive trauma. Oh, wow. Yes, yes. And it's brilliantly written. The poem itself is just, you know, just nothing like it. you got to read it. So Gwendolyn Brooks, Mm -hmm. The Mother, is the name of the poem. And I choreographed it on Laurieann, who is our lead artist and just a dear person in, in every way. You know, she has been such a comrade in this whole journey of ballet five eight. And she gets me, I think on a very deep level choreographically. Mm-hmm. So I was able to find movement with her that was just so expressive and so unusual and so haunting within that context. Yeah. And I think that for me was a big milestone of being able to actually put into practice the physicality of what an emotion feels like in the body and to translate that on stage into a story that was not necessarily linear, but was told through emotion and snapshots and memories. So I think that had a huge impact on my style. And, you know, it's funny because I have like these more narrative ballets and then I have very abstract ones too. But one that I recently choreographed called Gospel Impressions is actually just like an inspired by the work of Makoto Fujimara. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sure you've heard of him. Wonderful yeah. painter, visual artist. And he made these five paintings to embody the four gospels. And then the fifth one is about the tears of Christ. Mm-hmm. And so we took those with his permission and used them to create dance movement. And that one, yeah, I think sculpturally is probably my best work, technically speaking, as a choreographer of just creating architecture from the painting and the music. It's like an odd mix of like latitude was the painting, longitude was the music, and like (laughs) charting the dance on that course is probably the best way I can describe it. Yes. Yeah. And then the one that I'm in the middle of right now, Bareface, which is 
utterly like incredible and also makes me want to tear my hair out all at the same time. It's like one of those where yeah. it's just so dense. Um, mm-hmm. It's inspired by Till We Have Faces by C.S. Lewis, which is a hard book to understand already. Right. And then trying to make it into a ballet. Yeah, it's been the, the best of times and the worst of times. <laughs> it's been everything. But I think, I think I'm liking where we're finally ending up. You know, I had a rehearsal for it today and I was like, okay, I think we're almost there. Mm-hmm. And I think it, it's just brand new. It's just very creative. I don't think there's anything like it that I've ever seen in, in any dance, you know, atmosphere. And I think it takes the best of what ballet can be, but it really updates it, makes it accessible. Yeah. And tells the story of a woman who deceives herself into thinking that she loves people when actually she's using them. Wow. So it's, it's, yeah, Ooh, it, it's gets, be, it yeah, gets me it every time. So good. Thank oh, you. Cool. So anyway, so many, so many good ballets, but yeah, I'm really very fortunate. It's been a huge gift, very unexpected gift Mm -hmm. um, to get to be a choreographer. I love it. And hopefully I'll get to come see you guys perform in person sometime or when you're on tour at some point, maybe it'll work out. So I'd love to see, you know, this in person. So when is Bareface going to be performed? Yeah. Yeah. So the premiere is March 11th in Canton, Michigan at Connection Church. And then we're going to be in Atlanta. The end of March Um, we'll be in Troy, Ohio, the first weekend of April, and then be back in Chicago at the Harris Theater. Um, We're a resident company for the Harris and we'll be performing there on April 22nd. So exciting. Well, if anyone that's listening is in any of those areas or drivable, y'all should definitely try to be there because that sounds amazing. And just the little clips that I've seen, like the promo online looked incredible. So thank you. fun. Yes. Well, I would love to hear a little bit of your thoughts just on like being a mom and a mentor and leading a company, all of the things and something that you wrote in kind of our pre-podcast stuff that I loved was the idea of giving life to those around us. So I'm just curious, what does that look like for you to be able to give life to those around you? Um, And I think you use the word like multiplying, um, how God like multiplies that in our lives to be able to give out. So yeah, yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's so funny how like God's calling on women and mothers can look so similar in our actual literal family and then also in ministry. And so I think mm. it's been really interesting to reflect on just how God has done that. Because again, being a choreographer, you know, I'm not the one dancing on stage, but what God has given me and those giftings are able to be multiplied within the company. Mm-hmm. Very similar to the literal multiplication of having kids, right? Yeah. And bringing life into the world in a quite a literal way mm-hmm. and raising these young ones and teaching them about who God is and and trying to give them a glimpse of his heart and who he is. And so I think, yeah, so much of my story has been about kind of being this this life giver in the way that God gives me life and then calls me to then share that life with other people. And I consider that to be just the greatest of honors because, Mm -hmm. you know, giving life is something that we're so used to as women because it's just, you know, it's amazing. It's a miracle, but right. We can't sit around being amazed by it 24 seven. It's just, it is what it is, right? right? Women give life, right? We partner with God to make human beings. It's mm-hmm. wild. It is wild. But I think, yeah. yeah, I think sometimes when I think about how many places God has called me to that motherhood responsibility, whether it is spiritual motherhood, whether it is artistic motherhood, mm-hmm. whether it is actual motherhood with my three kids yeah. um, and even the life 
giving of being a wife, being a friend, being a board member, and and remembering that so much of what I am called to do, and I think what many of us are called to do, is to represent God in those spaces by bringing life, speaking life, encouraging, loving. And that's not always soft and gentle either. Sometimes that means bringing exhortation or admonishment. You know, sometimes it's challenging people to be the best versions of themselves, but that in and of itself is what giving life is, right? Mm -hmm. Giving birth, it's not all roses. There's great parts (laughs) and then there's tough parts. Exactly. And parenting too, I'm sure. (laughs) Right? And parenting. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think I just see those things played out over and over in so many beautiful ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm, I'm just really grateful that I get the opportunity to work with dancers every day and to, you know, walk alongside them in their journey and mm-hmm. do my best to encourage them and push them and challenge them and coach them. And yeah, it's just like a really sacred, beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. And then I think with my kids too, it's just an incredible journey to watch as they develop and as they become who God created them to be. And my hope is that as I stay connected to the Lord and they're connected to me, that eventually I can then transfer them, you know, to the Lord, to that direct source. So I think that's kind of where I I see my role is like a bit of a bridge sometimes to the little ones who don't fully know who God is yet and to step in and to be that life giver until they understand and taste this taste and see that he's good and then are able to draw from him themselves Mm -hmm. and being a part of that transfer as a mentor and as a mother is yeah just a tremendous blessing such a beautiful concept and way to like think about it and I think that's going to be a huge encouragement especially for all the women out there that are listening and you know getting to to recognize wow this is such a a privilege really and an honor to be in that role, whether literally as a mom or, you know, as sort of spiritual mothers, like you said, or artistic mothers. So yeah, love that. Thanks for sharing your heart. And I know I feel like so many of these things we could go in like a whole hour. <laughs> right. Each topic. No, this is so good though. Maybe we'll just have to have you back sometime. That would be fun. <laughs> oh, that'd be fun. Absolutely. Anytime. Yeah. I always love chatting and talking about the Lord. And yeah, you're great. You're very easy to talk oh, to, Rachel. So thank, thank you. you. Thank you so much. Well, as we wrap up, I always love to ask everyone, is there something on your heart that you'd like to share with other artists right now? So anything you feel like God is kind of speaking to you to share? Yeah, no, I think the big thing for me has just been to encourage that boldness and that creativity to not get trapped in any boxes in the work that we're doing as Mm -hmm. artists and just to recognize that God is so big and expansive, right? And there's so much about him that we know, but then like 1 Corinthians 13 talks about, there's still so much to discover, right? We see through a glass, but dimly. And so I think just to encourage everyone that's listening, if you're an artist or yeah, just a believer to think outside of the box a little Mm -hmm. bit about how God might be calling you to minister. It might look totally different than what you would expect. It has in my life looked completely different than what I thought I would be doing. But it could not be more beautiful. And I think about how much creativity God has. And and I think it's easy to to limit him sometimes to like, okay, you know, ministry is whatever, feeding, starving children, which is good and super important, right? So not knocking that, but to recognize that ministry is also a much bigger, bigger, bigger thing than just maybe some of the things we immediately come to mind. Mm -hmm. Um, And to recognize that God is in and around and among all of that and that his mission, I think sometimes 
calls us to unexpected places and to just be willing to be willing to go there, Mm -hmm. to be willing to make that that piece of art that might go, okay, this is going to be something unexpected that people might not think of as faith based. But when God asks you to do that out of his bigness and out of his beauty and out of the well of truth that is God, you have to be obedient to it. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't have to worry about cliches or trends or fitting inside of some known box. Um, You know, there's going to be people that come after me that are going to create in different ways than I've created. And I want to be open to that when that happens. And so I think just that calling all of us to explore Mm -hmm. the totality of the goodness and the beauty of God and to not feel held back by what has been done, but to really earnestly seek God for what he is doing. Yes. So good. Such a great encouragement for all of us today. And my last question just for fun is what is one of your favorite things right now? Well, right now I have been really enjoying chocolate with almonds in it. I know that's like a funny one, but yeah, I've been eating a piece of dark chocolate with almonds in it every night. It's like my little end cap, you know, Mm -hmm. the night is done. Tomorrow is another one kind of thing. So yeah, I've been really enjoying that small, simple joy. Yes, that's perfect. That's a great answer. I love chocolate. So yes, I'm right there with you. That's so cool. Well, Juliana, this has been such a gift and I would love to let people know where they can connect with you and Ballet 5-8. So what's the best way to do that? Yeah. So you can find Ballet 5-8 online at ballet58.org. My website is julianaslager.com and you can find us on Instagram or Facebook at Ballet 5-8 or at Juliana Rubio Slager. And of course, if you search YouTube, um, you can see 5-8's work kind of in action and see little clips of what the company is doing. Yes, which is super fun. I definitely encourage everyone to do that. So good. Well, thank you so much again, Juliana. I'm just so grateful for you and your heart. And just in this little bit of time, we've gotten to know each other. Just seeing the way God is moving is super encouraging. And I hope, like I said, to see you guys in person sometime. That would be so fun. Absolutely. Yes. Yes, please. Awesome. I will. I look forward to that. Thank you so much, Rachel. so grateful for that time I got to spend with Juliana. Her story is so powerful. Be sure to check out their upcoming tour dates for Bareface. And if you're in the area, I definitely recommend that you try to make one of the shows. And just as a reminder, if you happen to be in the Houston area, we'd love to have you join us for the Project Dance Houston open air concert this Saturday, March 18th at Levy Park. You can find out more and get all the details on Facebook or Instagram by searching for Project Dance Houston. You can find all the links, the full show notes, and additional resources on our website, creativeimpactpodcast.com. If you've been enjoying the show, I invite you to share it with a friend. That is really the best way to help spread the word. And also, if you'd be willing to take a few minutes to rate and review the show wherever you're listening, that would be so incredible. If you're interested in helping to financially support the podcast, you can check out our Patreon community. And for less than the cost of one coffee at Starbucks, you can help it to continue and spread to more people. You can learn more at creativeimpactpodcast.com slash Patreon, which is P-A-T-R-E-O-N. You can also just go to the website and click on Patreon at the top of the page. Thank you so much for your support and for listening to the Creative Impact Podcast. The music for the show is produced by Michael Cash. Until next time, remember that you were designed to create. You were made to inspire. Continue living with purpose and making an impact. I'll see you next time or at Project Dance this weekend. Bye, friends.